0: Let's pray together. Indeed, we, we do rejoice, O oh Lord. We, come, we do come with joy and worship because you are good and gracious to us. And so we come as those who bow our hearts and bow our lives before you saying that this heart and this life is not our own, it's yours. Thank you for the life that you've given through your Son, Jesus Christ. Though you, God, do not need us, you're not ever lonely, you're not deficient in anything, you, in grace and mercy, you sent your Son to save us. And so we thank you, Lord, for you, your goodness and your graciousness that you have showered upon us. And what a joy it is to come this morning to rejoice in you and to worship with the saints. What a privilege, what an honor, what a blessing. And may we not take it for granted, even as Dennis prayed a moment ago. And as we come this morning to worship, we are not here to worship ourselves. We're not here to worship our emotions. Uh, we're not to worship our voices. We're not here to worship our families. And we're not here for anything else. We're only here for you and to worship you. And if that's not true of us right now, may you convict our hearts. And may we even now. Repent of it, even now, before we dive into your word, convict us, show us, help us, that our hearts would be single and centered upon you. As we come to your word this morning, help us to come in view of the glorious gospel of grace. It is simple, and yet it extends from Genesis to Revelation. And how deep and wide it is. So help us this morning to glory in the gospel of God today. Help me, Lord, as I preach your word, that I preach it faithfully, truly, gladly, humbly, passionately, wholeheartedly, and may your spirit work for the preaching of your word. And so help us, Lord that none of us would come or leave here this morning the same. We pray and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Esther. And we'll be continuing our study walking through the book of Esther. And we'll be in chapter 9. We're not going to look at the whole chapter this morning, just chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. Now, many years ago, when I used to work in automotive work, our store, we had a contest with other stores, and we won. I can't remember if we won money or won whatever, but we were able to go go go-karting as a store together, and so that's what we did. And I went along, of course, with them, and, and all was fine and well, you know, I wasn't in first place but also wasn't in last place I think I was like third or fourth along the way and then you know as I'm going along my way, merry way you know for some reason I know you're gonna think what in the world are you doing doing this but for some reason I started daydreaming <laughs> as we're go-karting and as you can imagine that's not a good thing when you're going around twists and turns and so when I came out of my daydreaming, I kind of awoke to myself, as you might say, and I saw that I was at this turn, a 180-degree turn, that I needed to act on very, very soon. <laughs> there was the wall. Here I am. And so immediately I acted, and I turned the wheel sharply, but it wasn't enough, and I banged hard against the side. Of the wall of the track. Now that would have been fine, um, you know. In general, I mean, a good, you know, roughing up isn't bad. You know, being jolted uh, a little bit is is okay. But the thing was, is when I hit the the wall, I banged my ribs hard against the go kart. Now, if you knew you've been in a go kart, it's got some padding, but really, it's padding the metal. <laughs> and so I banged hard my rib and instantly you can imagine what happened pain right (laughs) and that's exactly what I felt Um, and even to this day I feel pain sometimes in my ribs back there where I hit the cart and uh, the pain was shocking because I was in my nice little daydream and was awoken quite abruptly in many ways and so the pain was shocking Now, you can talk about pain, but the reality of pain is a different thing altogether, isn't it? You know, it can be all a pie in the sky, but then when you're actually talking, or when it actually happens to you, it's a different thing altogether. And there are things like that. You know, where talking about it, it's one thing, but the reality of it, when the real thing actually comes to you and happens, it's a whole different thing. And it can be shocking. It can be overwhelming. Well, this morning in the book of Esther, we come face to face with a shocking reality. And I hope you're shocked by it this morning. Because I think we all will be. And all are right to be. But what is this shocking reality? Well, The shocking reality is this, it is God. And it's his justice. It's God and his justice. So to see this, let's read here then, beginning with Esther chapter 9, verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same... When the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King of Hazaras to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents all helped the Jews for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. And the Jews Jews struck all their enemies with a sword, killing and destroying them and did as they pleased to those who hated them. And Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men and also Aspatha and Paratha and Adelia and Eridatha and Parmashtha and Eressai and Eridai and Vizatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hand on the plunder. And that very day... The number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king, he said to Esther, In Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. And so the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on plunder. The plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. On the 14th day, they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day, on the 14th, and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day of gladness and feasting as a holiday and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. So as we are drawing very near now to the end of the book of Esther, I want to say something very similar to what I said last time we walked through Esther in Esther chapter 8. As I said a few weeks ago... As we are drawing near to the end of this book and to the end of Esther, we're getting to these parts of Esther that I think that probably most of you, if not all of you, are rather unacquainted with. Because these are not the kind of the key areas that we kind of focus in on and we know well within the book of Esther. They're not things that we often consider and ponder and think upon But this is why I am so thankful for expositional preaching. It not only challenges me, it challenges all of us that we would hear the whole counsel of the Word of God and not just hear those climactic moments when the the sea is parted and then we're like, whoa! And we don't hear about all the uh, offerings and sacrifices and chronicles and names and ages and everything else. We just skip all over that as we preach, if We don't preach expositionally. And so I come thankful that we are walking through this book, one chapter and verses at a time. And so we come to consider these verses then. And so the story, it does not end in chapter 7, which is, I think, where most of us kind of end the book of Esther, is in chapter 7. So Haman was hanged there. And we might think if You ended there that all was well. Well, if you remember from last time, you know very well that all was not well. (laughs) Yes, Haman was gone, but the story is not over. There's still the biggest problem to be dealt with. The fatal edict to put to death all the Jews was still in Action! It had not ended. It was going to happen. All the Jews were going to be killed still, even though Haman was hanged. But then, as we saw last time in chapter 8, what happened? Esther came and gave her passionate appeal. And a new edict was sent out, not undoing the previous edict, but a new edict was sent out saying that the Jews, they could go on that day... When the edict would be performed, Haman's edict to kill all the Jews was going to be performed, what they could do is they could defend themselves. They could fight. And so as we come to these final chapters then, we see what we've kind of been seeing. But now I'm lifting up high for all of us to see, which I think God wants us to see as well. And so, as we see these final chapters, we see more and more reversals. More and more reversals. And so, the book of Esther has really been a book of a massive kind of plot line waves. And I mean that like waves, like water. And so, like one tsunami after another in the book of Esther kind of grows and it grows and it grows. And then, nothing. <laughs> so it's, it's all just kind of heading in one direction. And then one by one, each tsunami, it just kind of crashes on nothing. It all just jerks in an entirely different direction than the momentum of the plot line and where it was taking us. And so the reversals, if you remember, they all began back in chapter 6 with the king honoring Mordecai with the most unlikely of ways that this would happen do you remember what how that came about that's right he was snoozing or he was not getting any snoozes <laughs> if that's even a word he was not able to sleep a sleepless night god's sovereign hand bringing about his plans no parting of seas, and he is bringing about his will through a sleepless night of the king. We see how powerful and great our God is again and again and again and again and again. And so Mordecai was honored in chapter 6, reversal. And so then one after another, we find reversal, reversal, reversal in the book of Esther. And so then we see Haman is... Undone. Chapter 7, the edict is undone. Chapter 8, and now here in chapter 9, verses 1 through 19, we see the enemies of the Jews undone. Like I said, waves stopped. Reversals, one after another. And so we see here the Jews gain victory over their enemies and so this emphasis on reversals i'm not just making that up and you see it in what i just said but we see it very plainly in verse one as well and so in the it says there again on the very first day when the enemies of the jews hoped to gain the mastery over them what does it say the reverse occurred the jews gained mastery over those who hated them and so as their enemies rose to do them harm, it was their enemies who, one by one, fell by the sword, one after another, including Haman's ten sons, which you find in verses 7-10. through 10. And so this big wave crashing on nothing. Now, and the naming of the ten sons, that's not just theirs. So you're like, huh, why I didn't know their names. I mean, I'm glad I do now. Well, that's not why they're there. That's not why the author of Esther wrote the ten names of Haman's sons. It's doing more than letting you know their names. What we're seeing here in the listing of their names is, are two things. This isn't in your sermon notes, but you could make a letter, another line for this if you like. But we're seeing the impact of legacy and the impact of pluralism. The impact of legacy and pluralism. Now, we see it in legacy in that we see the repercussions of parental discipleship, whether it is good or bad. So, Haman was discipling his children in such a way that they are following in him in suit, and they are following him right into destruction. There is Haman's legacy. Now, I don't know about you, but as you're considering discipleship, you're considering yourself, parents, even grandparents, I want you to hear that you're leaving a legacy, whether you are saying, you know what, I'm not going to read the Bible with my children. I'm not going to have times of family worship with my children. I'm not going to take them to church. Well, whether you do that or not, you are discipling your children. They are learning from you. They're learning from what you watch. They're learning from what you listen to. They're learning from what you say. They're learning from what you do. How you treat that waitress or waiter. Oh, that's how I need to treat a waiter or waitress. How you, What you read, what you don't read. They're learning from you. And so your children will follow you. Whether they think so or not. And so, as the saying goes, as father or mother, so son or daughter. And so, we see the legacy that Haman left for his children. They thought, oh, how we'll follow our dad and we'll follow him even into destruction and rebellion against the living God. And so, let me ask you as you see these names. You hear this, you see this legacy that Haman left. Let me ask you, what legacy are you leaving with your children or your grandchildren? And I mean that, please consider what legacy you're leaving with your children or grandchildren. And grandparents, you can read the Word of God with your grandchildren, you can do family worship with your grandchildren. And so, how are you doing that? Where are you doing that? How are you aiming to point them to Christ and to God and to the joy that never ceases to satisfy? Are you discipling your children to be passionate about God or about so many other things? And So legacy and then we see also with the listing of Haman's children's names, pluralism. So pluralism in in that their names were likely reflective of the plurality of gods that were worshipped in Persia, which is, again, discipleship, right? I mean, Haman, he names his children after various gods and various portions of God's names within Persia. I mean, that's saying something. And so it's also saying something as well that with the falling of Haman's sons, what we're seeing is something akin to the book of Exodus. And what do we see there? Plague after plague, and the various gods of Egypt are being laid low, and God is delivering his people, will hear. We are seeing the various gods laid low and God is delivering his people. That's what's being lifted up. That's what's being declared here. You see what God is doing again. He is doing what he said he would do. He's being faithful. He's being good in the gracious God. He is. And so all of this comes in fulfillment of God's word. Now, it's no fancy biblical maneuvering or some, you know, preacher magic trick to make an appropriate connection here to 1 Samuel 15. Why? Because there is a connection here to 1 Samuel 15. (laughs) And you may not made that connection, but let me show you. So in 1 Samuel 15, if you don't know what's going on in that chapter, the king, King Saul, he disobeys God. And he disobeys God's word. And what does he do? He lets King Agag live when God said, no, no, you are to put him to death and he didn't just disobey in that way but he disobeyed in taking the plunder of the amalekites as well and so samuel he goes to king saul and he says in first samuel 15:18 through 19 and the lord sent you on a mission and said go devote to destruction the sinners the amalekites and fight against them until they are consumed Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil? You could put a slash there, plunder, and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so what we're seeing is this masterful biblical connections happening in the book of Esther. We're seeing Haman, the Agagite, King Agag, the Amalekites, related to them, sinners, rebellion, rebellious against God. And then we're seeing Mordecai. If you remember back in chapter 2, verse 5 through 6, it said that he was related to who? King Saul. <laughs> and now here are the people of Israel saying that we will do the word of the Lord. We will not take the plunder. We will fulfill his word. And so they would not fail to do all of God's word here. And so where we might call it redundant, when you see something repeated in Scripture, you need to be like, What's going on? Why is that repeated again and again and again? And what do I mean? Well, in verses 10, 15, and 16, what does it say there? It says, But they laid no hand on the plunder. (laughs) Connection, 1 Samuel 15. It's emphasizing the Jews are not doing as Saul did. It's emphasizing they are following the Lord. It's emphasizing even Exodus seventeen sixteen, which says the Lord will have war with Am- Am- Amalek from generation to generation, which is exactly what we're seeing here in Esther. And so in all this, we must see that the word of the Lord, it will not fail even though all might seem to be lost. The word of the Lord will not fail, even though all might seem to be lost. We see it with this word from Exodus, when he talks about how he will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. We see it with his promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob that even here in Esther, God is honoring and protecting his promise that all through Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. He is guarding the fact that through this nation will come the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And he will fulfill his word. And he did even this very moment. So God is delivering his people again. Even though, from every angle, if you were a Jew at this time, you might have thought that your end was near. It wasn't. Why? Because God's word was not going to fail. And maybe you're there this morning, morning, maybe you're wondering this morning, will the word of the Lord truly come to pass? And and maybe in your life you're seeing the waves rising over you, and, and maybe it's scary, maybe you're like, oh man, it's coming right for me. Maybe the tsunami is coming, you might even be rolled away with it. Yet, hear me well this morning. See Esther and know this. See the word of God and know this. The word of the Lord will not fail. It may be that you have looked out over our nation. Or you have looked out over the future or your family Maybe some relationship and it is broken and you have no idea how it will be resolved. Or you look at your health, you're like, I might not come back from this. And you've wondered, you know, where can hope be found? Where can our hope be found in our nation, in the future, for my family, for my health? or whatever it is. Well, friend, it's not in going about blind through this world, but going through this world with the word of the Lord before you, behind you, all around you, trusting in him with every single step. Because why? The word of the Lord will not fail. Even if you die from that cancer, it won't fail. You can trust him because he is faithful and he never fails. He has never lied and he always does what he says he's going to do. And so we must see the word of the Lord will not fail, even when the waves are great. And we must see the word of the Lord will not fail, even though our enemies might be many and great as well. I mean, they were great here, weren't they? But it didn't matter. <laughs> it didn't matter that they were great. God delivered them. You know, being a Christian today, it is not popular, right? I mean, maybe you didn't know that. I mean, if you didn't know that, then... Well, we maybe may need to talk a little bit. but because, because you would know that if you're trying to follow the Word of God. And so at least being a Christian in the biblical sense is not popular. So I'm not talking here about like fluffy Christianity, you know, that gives up the Word... Without thinking twice, you know, that even blink and they give up the word of God. I'm talking about those who want to follow the Lord, imperfections and all. Lord, here I am. I'm following you. I'm following your word. I want to do your will. I live to please you. Even though I sin, even though I struggle with this heart of mine, even though I always treat people the way I should, I'm gonna follow you. Sins and struggles and all. Why? Because Christ is my hope. He is the one who's redeemed me. All my sins are forgiven through Him. And in Christ, I live and breathe and do all I do. And as we think about enemies, I'm not talking about disagreeing with each other. And that's an important clarification here. When someone disagrees with you, that does not make them your enemy, okay? So please hear that this morning. Disagreement does not equal enemy, right? You can disagree on many things and be united in Jesus Christ. Why? Because Christ is our unity. He is our life. That's why all of us, though we're all different here, we all have different views and perspectives and everything else, we come united in Christ Jesus. So disagreement does not equal enemy. Get that clear in your heads, please. Because that's not what the culture is saying. They're saying disagreement equals enemy. An enemy is someone who opposes. It implies opposition, ill will, hatred, a desire to harm you very really, truly, physically or verbally. They do not intend good for you. That is an enemy. And though your enemies may be many and great, Let me urge you this morning, do not look at them and let that, as you look at the culture, as you look at the world, and you see everyone saying this, saying that, oh yeah, the culture is saying this, so maybe we should adjust a little bit and just kind of give in to LGBTQ or homosexual marriage or whatever else it is. Well, friend, that is not where your eyes are to be. Don't look at them and let that determine your faithfulness. Where you need to look is you need to look at God and his word and Christ. And you need to go on following him. That's where you need to look, church. Not at the world and the enemies and the armies rising up perhaps against us. We just push them all out of the way and say, Lord, you're stronger than them all. And my eyes are on you. That's why David can say in Psalm 27, though an army rise against me, I still will be confident. Because his eyes are on the Lord. So we aren't determined, we aren't to determine our faithfulness based on culture, but based on upon our Lord. And his word will not fail. So let me ask you, are you looking to the one who has promised that he will carry you to the very end until you go home in glory as you face waves, as you face a world of enemies. Are you looking to him who promised that he will carry you until the very end and no one will snatch you out of his hand? He is worthy of our trust this morning and joyful laughter at funny songs as well (laughs) as we consider all we see here in these verses like I began this morning some of it may be a bit shocking so the Jews they destroyed their enemies and as you read that It might be that you're asking, which isn't a wrong question, is that okay? (laughs) Is that okay that they did all that? We need a bit of perspective here, and so we need to see the shocking reality of God's justice. The shocking reality of God's justice. Now, before we talk directly about his justice, we need to consider two important points. And first, we need to see that the Jews' actions, they were defensive. They were defensive. So we need to remember what was about to happen here in Esther. On the 12th month, on the month of Adar, on the 13th day, every single Jew was going to be killed. Man, woman, child, child. Young, old, every single one. The promise of the Messiah ended. That's a big deal. <laughs> and that is something to be appalled at. And so the Jews arising here to defend themselves was built into what we see happen. In these verses, they destroyed only those who sought to do them harm, which we see in verse 2. And so it was not indiscriminate. It was a rightful defense. And so that's one. The Jews' actions were defensive. And then second, there are aspects of the carrying out of this edict that shock us. That shock us now. What do I mean by that? Well, upon defending themselves on that day, the king asks Esther if there's anything else that she might have as a request. In verse twelve, and what she does is she asks for another day. Hmm. Now that right there may sound odd to us if you just think about it a little bit here. And so, so far, could it be that we have been kind of seeing and interacting with good Esther, and now at this point, we encounter bad Esther, <laughs> you know, vengeful Esther. Go get him and show him, you know, who is the boss Esther. Is that, is that what's happening here? Some think so, and it could be that, but I don't think so. So the thrust of this story, it does not give us the sense, nor does it give it any further reason than what we have already seen, that the Jews, what they're doing is they're trying to defend themselves. And so she very well could have had good reason to request Another day, I mean, the enemies, at this point, they might have been still nipping at their heels, perhaps even waiting for the next day, even waiting to deal out murder and vengeance and anger. Now, we we don't ultimately know, but I don't think this means that we need to assume the worst of Esther here. And even in the hanging of Haman's sons, I mean... Now, that, was, that, would, that would be shocking. Now, remember, the hanging of the sons wasn't by like a rope. It was on a stake. Each one would have been hanged within Susa. But here, even the hanging on the gallows, it would serve as a warning to everyone who might rise up against the Jews in the future and saying that God has delivered them. And so, okay, you might say, all right, well, maybe. <laughs> but having said all that, these were all real people, weren't they? I mean, death and blood flooded the land. Something none of us really know here. Dead bodies strewn everywhere. Blood on everything. The smell That accompanies all of these things. 75,000 plus people dead. And it was a plus. It's very likely many, many more. See that in verse 6, 12, and 16. So, as we see all this, how should we think through it? Well, first, the real world can be shocking. The real world can be shocking. We are living in a fallen world. I don't know if you know this yet, but this is not heaven. If anyone tells you this is heaven, friend, in all love, this is not heaven. You know, your, your home, that's not where you to, are to plant yourself like this is my home forever. It's going to burn, it's not going to last. This is not heaven. And we have seen that. And I think if we're, we're honest with ourselves, we, we know and we look out over history and we see that wars, they have ravaged our world again and again. And great evils, they have abounded again and again and again. Atrocities that we just simply do not want to talk about. I mean, we don't like to talk about all the horrors of this world, but they are there nonetheless. Why? Because this world is fallen. It is sin-cursed. There are people like Charles Manson who commit great evils. There are people like Jeffrey Dahmer. You may hide from it. You may pretend like he wasn't around, but he was. And he did exactly all the evil and atrocities and the murders that he did. There's an Adolf Hitler who comes and murders and waylays and kills millions and millions. And there are Mao Zedong's who come and kill more than Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin combined. So we could hide from it. We can hide our children from it. But friends, this is the real world. And we are dealing with the real and living God. And we're dealing with the real, fallen, cursed world. There are people like Haman. There is the sin each of us struggle with in our hearts and lives. So as we look out over all of these things if we go about and look at these things and we say, let's make a fabricated kind of mock morality to kind of address these things. Well, friends, that will not do. We are right to ask, when? When and what will justice look like for all of this? This mountain, this mass of evil all around us in the real world and answering this the only answer is found in God but let me say this the reality of God can be shocking the reality of God can be shocking why is that? Because he is who he is. He is infinitely good and holy character will not be moved by anyone. Not any of you. Not anyone throughout history. No one is going to change God. Period. You can try to relativize him. You can go along with the culture. You can follow postmodernism. You can say, well, maybe we should just adjust God a little bit. Well, guess what? That will not change God. Not a bit. Nothing changed. Preachers can go and say, well, God is this way, God is that way. That will not change him. He is who he is. Trying to ignore his word will not change God. Trying to excuse yourself. Or even saying, you know what, Christianity is not for me. Maybe you're saying that this morning. That does not change God, nor your accountability to Him. He is God, and there is no other. Feel that this morning. Even be shocked by that this morning. He is unchanging, as he says in Malachi, for I, the Lord, do not change. Or as James says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He does not change. And this is also true of his justice. Now, when I say that, a bit of trembling needs to enter the room because his justice has a finality to it and it's coming. Now, lest we forget, you want to know, you think, oh, well, the New Testament, I mean, God is a God of love. Yes. Romans 1, His wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Right now, in Revelation, what do you see? What you see is, yes, the glory, the consummation of the kingdom for the saints. But you see the justice of God and the wrath of God being poured out upon all who have rebelled and rejected him. That's justice, and it's coming. And it will look like something like we see here in Esther. That's justice. And it's right. As R.C. Sproul, he said, no matter how much injustice I have suffered from the hands of other people, I have never suffered the slightest injustice from the hand of God. Never. Never. So as we see God's justice in Esther here, and even throughout Scripture, you and I need to say, there is no injustice here from God. And, As you face life, you face cancer, you face the fallen world, you can say with confidence, I have never faced injustice from God, not even once. Because you haven't. Or do we say only with our mouths, God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. Do you mean that? Well, then you'll say the other thing, too. That's why I had Megan read Psalm 145. As we're going to be shocked by God's justice this morning, I wanted you to see His grace, His mercy, His his goodness, His love, which is equally true. He is good, yes, and He is just, yes. Both. Both even as we see justice poured out in all its finality. And so as we see this, we need to remember that justice is required. Justice is required. As you read the accounts like this in the Bible, we must take ourselves out of the context here and now and ask, would it change if if you take yourself out of our world right now and you put yourself and you're standing right before the holy and living god how would that change your perspective a lot maybe (laughs) big time well this is where the reality comes in this is where we see and we know in a very basic way that justice is required because you know this personally You know this personally. You know that justice is required. I mean, you get it easy enough when someone wrongs you, right? I mean, right then and there. I mean, how quickly when you feel slighted or offended, you're like, man, they need to get paid back for that, you know? I want some justice here. You know, that's not fair. And we know this in wrongs done to us or even when we look at cases like Charles Manson or Hitler and others, we, we say, we need justice here. I mean, this, something needs to happen. A slap on the wrist is simply not enough. Even if they are put to death, executed, it feels not enough for the evils and atrocities they have done. You see, you and I know that justice is needed. And so as we read all this, we must come to terms with the reality of God and his perfect character. God has no flaws, no imperfections, and not even a hint of error in judgment ever. And this flies in the face of the air we breathe. We live in a culture that relativizes life. And we are not to follow. God is not flawed. We are. And that's the problem. Our flaws are deep, great, and devastating. And that is also why when we hear about the justice of God this morning... We even see it, it's shocking. But this is also why we must come to terms with the reality of God and His perfect Son. Jesus is exactly what we are not. He knew no sin, He knew no guilt, He had no flaws. As Corinthians says, Even though he had no sin, he was perfect. This is what God did for our sake. He, the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin, whom who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Incredible. Incredible grace and this is what Jesus may be to you this morning you see justice is coming and either that justice it will be satisfied in the cross of Jesus Christ or it will be satisfied in the full weight of all your wrongs against God being poured out upon you And so as we read of these things in Esther and the reality of God and his justice, it may well be shocking. And I hope it is because God is shocking in many ways. He is overwhelming in many ways. This is why Isaiah is overwhelmed in Isaiah 6. He is God. And his justice will be poured out, but that is no blight upon him. It's a blight upon us. And so the answer is not for us to relativize God, nor to fit him into our culture, nor to form and to shape him into our liking. Instead, our response is to be one of resolution this morning. As you come and you hear of the real and the living God, your response is to be one of humbling one of hands open, one of worship, one of faith, one of rest, and one of trust in him. And so may we, may you this morning unabashedly come to terms with the reality of God, and as we have this morning, may we behold and bow before the real and the only God. So may we do that as we pray. Oh Lord, we're overwhelmed by you. In your reality, we we are not worshiping a God that we have made. You are God. this morning we just come and we bow ourselves before you and it may mean that you're calling us to repent of fabricating you or even fleeing from you and your word, saying that we'll just follow the culture. Not believing your word, a lack of faith, a lack of trust, a lack of, Willingness to follow Christ. Help us, Lord, to repent of that this morning. Or it may be that there's someone here who hears all this and they're rightly overwhelmed and shocked by the reality of God and your justice. But they see that Christ is the answer. That he died and was buried and rose again for them. So we pray for that person that they would... Look to Christ by faith, repent and believe the one and only gospel and be saved this morning. So be with us as we respond your word, as we obey and behold and bow before you, the real and the living God, in Jesus' name.